0: Welcome to Medical Minefield, the podcast where we talk about the ethical dilemmas at the heart of the health stories that matter the most. I'm Barney Kalman.
1: And I'm Eve Simmons.
0: And we are health journalists, which means we spend our lives asking tough questions to top experts so you don't have to.
1: This week we're talking about anti-vaxxers. Do they have the right to free speech? Should they be able to say whatever they like, wherever they like, or should they be silenced?
0: As ever, we'd like to know what you think, so please do get in touch with any questions and suggestions, tweeting us using the hashtag MedicalMinefield or email us at health at mailonsunday.co.uk. Are you prepared to forego the chance to be the greatest player that ever picked up a racket, statistically, because you feel so strongly about this jab? Yes. That was tennis superstar Novak Djokovic being interviewed this week on the BBC. It's the first time he's spoken since he was deported from Australia where he was trying to take part in the Australian Open tennis tournament but it turned out that he had not had his vaccine. He wasn't welcome. Got booted out.
1: And then got put in quarantine. No, before he got booted out he was put in a horrible quarantine where he was treated terribly. There
0: were protests. He Eventually he was actually booted out for inciting anti-vax, anti-vax protests. anti yes. yeah. It was dangerous. He was dangerous to the public. Decided politicians. Let's hear a little bit more of what he had to say.
1: Based on all the informations that I got, uh, I, I decided not to take the vaccine uh, as of today. I just don't have enough clarity of how the COVID vaccine will affect me and whether it's going to, you know, create a certain uh, effect on my on my game, and I wouldn't have the benefits that I would normally have. So I just don't feel. At the moment, this is the right thing for me to to have.
0: I mean, that sums up the general kind of, that was the most revelatory thing that happened in the interview. And critics said that he went unchallenged in that. I certainly would have said...
1: What information? What information? Where are you getting your information from? And also,
0: what about all the other Olympians and elite athletes who have had the jab with absolutely no problem whatsoever? What makes you so different or special? So why
1: didn't he ask that is the big million-dollar question.
0: Absolutely. And people have fairly asked, should he have been given a platform to air such clearly misinformed, misleading and potentially dangerous views at all?
1: And well, it begs a wider question about whether we should be barring people with these extreme views from speaking on TV and from posting on social media. I think it's called deplatforming.
0: Obviously, this is the latest example. A, a month ago, Joe Rogan, mega podcaster, Joe Rogan, who's done thousands of, of podcasts. He's a mega
1: podcaster, but I don't actually know anyone who listens to his podcast. Anyway.
0: Maybe you're not the target audience. Uh, perhaps. You're not bro enough.
1: I don't know, I can be broke.
0: <laughs> he caused a controversy recently because he had the anti-vaxxer doctor, Robert Malone, who apparently had something to do at some point in the midst of time with the uh, development of mRNA vaccine technology, which is is the technology used in the in the COVID jab. He now appears at anti-vax protests. And saying, he's the
1: doctors that anti-vaxxers use to absolutely, justify their views. Absolutely.
0: And he was one guest on the Joe Rogan podcast, which is very long and gives people a lot of time to discuss these views um, that they have. And Rogan said, don't shoot the messenger, basically. Mm. You know, it, it caused this Ferrari. but he said, I interview people who are interesting, which I guess is a fair point.
1: And it's not his job to police what they say, free speech, all of that.
0: Absolutely. But there are things that it is illegal to say. For instance, Holocaust denial... And it's illegal to incite violence, Mm. but it's not illegal at present to influence someone to say no to a medical treatment that could save their life and then perhaps might result in their death. And any doctor I've spoken to who's working in A&Es and Mm. and acute wards and and ITUs say that they're endlessly seeing unvaccinated people, people who've decided that they don't want to have the vaccine because they don't believe that it works or that it's harmful or any of these and kinds of things and potentially
1: their decision influenced by misinformation uh, could also affect the health of other people around them in their immediate circle and and i guess you know if we were in a situation where there was another variant that was taking hold and affecting the entirety of the community then you know there would be a bigger public health impact
0: i totally agree when they're transmitted these kinds of views they do have an influence and i we see it from from day to day uh, the the letters that we get and we get them quite regularly from people who are anti-vax basically. They all say the same stuff they use terms like bodily autonomy they talk about the vaccine as an experimental gene therapy and they all talk about it breaking the Nuremberg Code. Oh yeah
1: that old chestnut.
0: The Nuremberg Code was put into place as a response to the medical atrocities that were carried out in the Nazi concentration camps. Mm -hmm. Basically it expressly prohibits human experimentation where some Someone doesn't consent to it which I think is vital I don't understand vital. the parallel
1: with, with <laughs>
0: well it's vital okay. that that's enshrined into law you of know, course th- th- it's something that upholds medical practice very much but there is no parallel to what's going on with the vaccine which has been through extensive medical trials
1: and also you can as I said volunteer to have it, no one is forcing you
0: but they all use that same language because they've all read the same website (laughs) or they've been in the same Facebook group and the same bits of misinformation are being transmitted again and again and something else that we've reported on quite a lot, statins is another area and Mm -hmm. we've seen the real life harms of of statin misinformation people who say that cholesterol lowering drugs don't work you don't need them the, the people who say they do work are in thrall to uh, pharmaceutical, pharmaceutical companies, companies mm. who are paying them off and you and know and the doctors
1: are crooked and that's absolutely.
0: why they absolutely
1: and studies
0: have shown that where stories make it into mainstream media about this. The, the side effects are being hushed up and the, everyone feels dreadful when they take statins. People stop taking the drugs, unsurprisingly. Mm. And the result is heart attack rates go up and people die. So misinformation has this direct
1: impact on our health.
0: But it is undoubtedly a controversial proposition to, to try and suppress free speech I mean, it's a serious thing to do. We're isn't sort it? of
1: taught to accept it and critique it and use your critical faculties to understand what's fact and what is not. But the general consensus isn't that we should get rid of it altogether.
0: But you know, something that I've found very, very challenging is that how do you counter batshit crazy conspiracy theories? You know, when someone's coming out with. A complete lie, it's just frustrating. You, do you know what I mean? You just have to say, no, it's not true. They but... just
1: justify it with another lie, and then another lie, oh, and then another lie. It's very difficult. Mm.
0: Anyway, before we go on, let's hear from someone who really does strongly believe and is doing research to prove that deplatforming, that silencing anti vax sentiments helps.
1: Yes, on the line now is Imran Ahmed, who is the CEO of the Centre for Countering Digital Hate. Imran, thank you so much for finding some time to talk to us today. Imran, your organisation authored a a paper, a research paper that looked at tracing back this misinformation that was circulating about COVID-19 and about the vaccine on social media. And I thought it was really interesting that you found that most of the misinformation that's out there that's popular can be traced back to 12 original sources. With this in mind, do you think then that it's better to de-platform those original sources or should we be debunking the information?
2: Well, look, when it comes to the disinformation dozen, a report that we put out in March 2021, that was a snapshot of disinformation on vaccines at the time. And what we found was that 12 people were responsible for producing 65% of the shares of misinformation on social media, that they were producing the content that was shared 65% of the time. And that's changed today, I mean, because... A number of them have been deplatformed as a result of our work. They've been designated as persona non grata by the platforms who said, we don't want to give you the freedom of reach that you enjoy on your platform. You have the freedom of speech to say it to whomever you want, but not on our platform
1: and you support that and, you you, you, you know, think that they should be deplatformed in that way
2: well every platform has a fundamental right to decide what's on their platform just as you know and a newspaper does or a television show or a radio show or a podcast they have the right to decide in fact the courts have repeatedly found that they are protected the platforms are protected by the first amendment against anyone saying that they must be on the platform
0: there's a concern that deplatforming people on a mainstream site simply drives them to another another site so you, you take someone off twitter and then they set up a massive telegram group or or such like is that a worry that we're allowing something to fester in a dark corner where we can't see it
2: yeah i mean look it's absolutely true that people who are deplatformed will seek other means to get their messages out but Of course, what they don't enjoy on smaller, more niche platforms, specifically for people that agree with them, they don't enjoy the reach, the ability to infect other people with the misinformation and lies that they spread. And that's because the total audience of people that want to go to a platform where you get that kind of stuff is quite small. Mm. The power of big platforms and a big megaphone is that everyone hears you. And of course, on a platform like Facebook or Twitter, that could be billions of people.
0: I mean, I'm no expert in underground forms of communication. But, you know, I I think people viewed the deplatforming of President Trump as a success. And, you know, I have no idea what this guy's up to. But every now and again, you know, I'll have a conversation with someone who says, in fact, he's going to make this huge comeback, you know, in the next election and that he's as popular as ever. And we're not talking about a small Group of people that are needed to elect a president. That's a huge number of people. So, you know, I mean, how does that square up to the idea of deplatforming being a success?
2: Well, the most immediate thing that was found after he was deplatformed was the study that showed that the amount of discourse, the amount of references to the big lie that the election was stolen, reduced considerably because he was a super amplifier of that claim to his millions of followers, many of whom then shared it to other people as well so actually reduce the overall volume of malignant content and when it comes to misinformation one of the things that bad content benefits from is that platforms are attracted to content that is controversial it drives people to interact with it whether they agree with it or not and that's actually skewed the content on those platforms towards misinformation ironically because that's the stuff that gets most people talking and Donald Trump understood that dynamic. He was that deplatformed, and that's neither here that nor there for me. What's interesting to me is the fact that it reduced the prevalence of a very dangerous lie, that, of course, that lie, having led directly to the assault on the Capitol and the deaths of, sadly, people in Washington, D.C.
0: So, I mean... But what's th- the long-term success of, of such a strategy... You know, if someone could come back from what he did, in my view, I just my mind's blown by that personally. But people say that this is a serious proposition. You must recognize that.
2: I mean, he's someone who had free reign to operate on those platform for years and years and build a base, a base that, of course, you know, rocketed him to the White House. So and he's still worth hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars. So he's someone that has an enormous ability to generate mainstream media coverage. Every time he says or does anything, it's covered in a number of different outlets. I think Donald Trump's a really bad example of what happens when you deplatform someone because, of course, he's someone who's always had a platform. If you look, for example, at studies that have been done on smaller groups, what you find is that deplatforming really, really damages their ability to generate revenues, to grow their follower base. And those people who are willing to use misinformation and hate have an advantage on social media platforms. When those platforms are taken away from them, they're exposed for what they are, which is people who can't actually generate a following in real life.
0: But some of your dozen are people who have huge platforms, Joseph Mercola and Robert Kennedy, for instance. So would de-platforming them help?
2: Well, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. was taken off Facebook but left on Instagram, and I think that shows that it is possible to take action against these people. Joe McCullough has had to, as a result of our study, he's voluntarily taken all of his COVID-related misinformation off his platforms. That's because they're aware that there are rules on those platforms. You have to follow the rules if you want to stay there and that they were going to be deplatformed eventually. It's so whether it's behavioural change with bad actors by giving them the threat of deplatforming and saying, look, there are rules. If you don't follow them, you'll be deplatformed or if they continue to break the rules in a sustained way and it can be shown that they're causing harm to deplatform them. I think that's a perfectly viable thing for a platform to do.
1: Imran, I've got a study in front of me. Um, It's a review of literature uh, from the Royal Society um, that says that there is little evidence to suggest that the censorship of scientific misinformation will limit the harms caused. And and this seems to be a kind of theme in a lot of the literature. I I don't know whether it's a case of the fact that, you know, there haven't been enough studies yet, but uh, there does seem to be this suggestion among experts that, in fact, deplatforming may not be as effective as as you're suggesting.
2: Well, the Royal Society report is right to identify that there isn't enough evidence out there. And, you know, one of the things that CCDH does is produce that evidence. We are one of the few organizations that studies ways to reduce the prevalence, the spread of misinformation and disinformation out there, who's producing it, how it takes advantage of algorithms. And we've worked with many of those scientists over the years. Most of the studies done on deplatforming have actually been done by counter-violent extremism and counter-terrorism professionals. So looking at the effect on extremist groups when you remove them from mainstream mm. platforms. So there are two effects. One, it massively reduces their reach and their ability to grow. But second, you're right that it drives them into darker spaces where they become a bit more not than ever before. The question is, may have been as dangerous before or after deplatforming. The consensus view amongst counter extremism professionals is that deplatforming is incredibly effective and reduces the threat they pose.
1: Imran, what do you think about the interview with Novak Djokovic that was uh, done by Amal Rajan of the BBC? Do you think that the BBC should have given him that platform and actually he went unchallenged for a lot of that interview?
2: Look, if the BBC was trying to debunk Novak Djokovic's claims, which were his claims of respecting the vaccine but wanting bodily sovereignty then they could have done a much better job of it than that. It appears to me that that was an entertainment product, you know, sort of designed to drive, well, I guess social media clicks.
1: You think he should have been challenged more, basically?
2: I think he should have been challenged, and I think it was giving airtime to these claims without challenge is a wrong-headed thing to do. But then, look, it's an entertainment product. I get it. And news channels have to earn a living... And they sought to do it by attracting one of the world's most prominent anti-vaxxers and giving him a sort of untrammeled opportunity to espouse his views for an hour.
0: He claimed not to be an anti-vaxxer, didn't he? You you know, I think it's really important
2: to remember that a lot of anti-vaxxers really hate that label, even though they go around spouting nonsense about vaccines on a regular basis. Mm. And it's because the concept of being an anti-vaxxer makes you look as though you're someone that's essentially a troglodyte, that you're hearkening back to it. And vaccines are 200 years old as a technology. They've saved more lives from disease, death and disability Mm. than almost any other medical invention. And so you you sound terrible when you call yourself an anti-vaxxer. I know Robert F. Kennedy Jr. once tried to threaten legal action against the Center for Countering Digital Hate, which I run, saying, you know, how dare you call me an anti vaxxer? Hmm. And our, our lawyers quite correctly responded by saying, but you are.
1: <laughs> There's not nothing else you can say in that situation, is there? Well, one thing that I, I'd like to ask you is over the past year, during kind of various reports that I've written about. Covid and about the vaccine etc and trying to understand anti-vaxxers, I've spoken to a lot of young people who aren't necessarily anti-vaxxers but are vaccine hesitant, have concerns and the thing that I've always been very struck by is the fact that they all say the same thing which is in the mainstream media, I'm I'm using air quotes when I say that, they all have this idea that the mainstream media is putting out a very one-sided view of vaccination which you could argue yes well that's just the, the kind of the scientific accepted logic but they have felt as though any concerns about the vaccine or any doubts they may have have not been properly addressed and when they're watching television and listening to the radio and such like any of those views have been very very quickly shouted down and that's almost pushed them in the other direction and i do feel some concern about that because it's it, clearly it's a it's a very real problem what would you say to them
2: i mean look misinformation is designed to make you hesitate it's not designed to persuade you of a case. So if you think about, for example, the claims that we need more evidence before we can be sure that it won't affect fertility. And I can tell you that I got married recently, you know, we're planning to have children together. And it made me pause because the most important thing in the world to me is to have, you know, God willing, healthy, happy children. And so when you realize that even people who are professionals when posed with nonsensical evidence, it can trigger something inside you, a fear, a pre-existing concern that you may have, a sensitivity, mm-hmm. then that's what misinformation is designed to do. It's its designed to make you scared. It's designed to make you hesitate. And it's really difficult to debunk all the different bits of nonsense out there. Everything from microchips in them and Bill Gates to fertility lies to we need to have more information not enough pregnant women have been tested The truth is that there's a million memes, but there's only three themes. One is that vaccines are dangerous. That's demonstrably untrue, given over half the world's population has been vaccinated now. And very, very few reactions have been seen to it. I mean, we're talking dozens rather than thousands. Mm. That COVID isn't dangerous. That, again, is demonstrably untrue. Millions of people have died as a result of it. And third is that you can't trust doctors. But you know, I would argue that that hasn't been very effective in the UK, in part because the UK more than anywhere knows that the NHS is actually on our side. It was there when we were born, it'll be there when we die, it'll be there. It tends in between. to
1: be the um, pharmaceutical companies that I think get it in the net quite a lot.
2: It's the NHS that's administering and has tested and has given us their judgment that this is an incredibly important and valuable therapeutic. It's the same people that patch your knee when you've taken a tumble, it's the same people that will be there when your kids are born. And they're saying it's the right thing to do. And actually, the NHS has been an incredible protector against vaccine misinformation in the UK because most people trust the NHS intensely. And also, the NHS has been very clear that vaccination is the best way to protect yourself against COVID.
1: Well, Imran Ahmed, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today.
2: My pleasure.
0: I have to say, emotionally, I completely agree with what he's saying. And there's something in the back of my mind that also worries about it. There's part of me that wants them where I can see them.
1: Me too. And actually, some of the research that I've come across shows that your worries are justified. Apparently, there's something called the Streisand effect, which is a little bit like what we talked about with Imran. That
0: Barbara Streisand.
1: I, I'm not actually entirely sure where the <laughs> name comes from, but it happens when censorship backfires. So you're pushing all of these very extremist... People onto smaller platforms, but their readership becomes a lot more engaged and Mm. stronger and more forceful. And we've seen this in studies. Telegram keeps coming up, the messaging Uh, app. Yes. Yeah, where you see sort of people sharing these more extreme views because they feel that they can because it's in a private forum. It was
0: mentioned to me a fair bit when I was reporting on ivermectin a couple of weeks back, and apparently it's how people are getting hold of it. There are doctors on Telegram Mm,
1: uh, offering
0: offering free consultations and prescriptions and such.
1: Madness. Like. And there's been this huge growth in popularity of the use of Telegram during the pandemic for this reason.
0: I think we should hear from someone who is perhaps taking a slightly different approach to misinformation and disinformation, discussing it openly and tackling it head on. We are joined now by the BBC's specialist disinformation and social media reporter, Mariana Spring. Mariana, thank you so much for finding time to talk to me. Um, We're talking today about anti-vaxxers and whether they simply have the right to free speech, to transmit what they like, when they like, wherever they like, or should more be done to limit their ability to speak publicly? Should they be silenced in some way? Now, you spend your life reporting on misinformation on social media and I'd like to know where you stand what should we do should we be limiting these people's ability to to speak publicly or is that not going to work
3: over the past couple of years one thing I've learned is that it's really important to investigate to interrogate to understand the online anti-vaccine movement and so much of my reporting and investigations have focused on that because if we can better understand Uh, why people are believing this stuff, but also hold to account those who are deliberately spreading falsehoods or putting people at risk and causing real world harm, which a lot of the pandemic and anti vax disinformation very much has, then that's an important part of public service journalism. And I've spent a lot of time speaking, particularly to people who are deep down the rabbit hole themselves. Um, And I think that that allows me to better report on this topic and uh, at the moment I'm working on a podcast series it's going to be going out next week actually on BBC Sounds it's called Death by Conspiracy and I interrogate that question who believes online conspiracies about the pandemic and why and I actually think in many ways the misconceptions we have about who believes them and that people have to be mad or stupid or bonkers are very unhelpful. And understanding that a lot of this is about deep distrust. People are often very intelligent, but hyper engaged with what they're seeing online and and the different people they're following. If we can better get to grips with how this works and the role that social media sites play or that politicians and distrust and government play, then we can investigate and interrogate it more effectively.
0: The reason we're talking today is because of the interview that's just aired with Novak Djokovic. What people have said is his views went unchallenged and that was the problem and we, we saw a similar criticism level at uh, Joe Rogan who regularly has on, well in uh, 1700 podcasts he's had all sorts of people on but he's he's had on recently some some people with some quite strong anti-vax views and he was heavily criticised for that it caused a huge storm. How are we supposed to monitor this? How are we supposed to rein it in if we are going to report on these things what should we do i mean should we always challenge people should it always be a specialist like yourself that interviews someone someone who's able to challenge these views
3: i think it's really important that we do attempt to understand what people are believing and why and where they're getting it from but also that we have to put evidence to people and interrogate what they're saying and try and better understand why they've adopted that opinion or that world view. And the thing I find, particularly when reporting on online conspiracy theories, is that it can be very complicated, untangling legitimate concerns, questions, and political criticisms that people might have from extreme beliefs and conspiracies. And the two are very often melded together. And you see how one idea jumps to another that's far more extreme and then back into the mainstream again. So I think it's crucial that we are able to have those conversations and to hear from people that we really interrogate what they're saying and that in itself helps people who are watching, listening, reading to understand what people believe and broadly when it comes to my reporting how the anti-vax movement operates online and why people are believing what when they do. When it comes
1: to broadcast journalism and interviews, as we saw with the Novak Djokovic interview, is there not a risk, though, if you're continually challenging someone and getting them to explain their views, that you're just giving more space to these quite convoluted, you know, non-evidence-based And many of theories. them can't be disproved,
0: really, can they? Because, I mean, if they're just complete lies, for instance, this Malone character who Rogan had on regularly says stuff like... There's a scientific consensus that the vaccine doesn't work and there's truth in that and it's and then it moves. As you say, it moves really quickly. And, and some
1: people won't be critically evaluating what somebody is saying. They'll just be listening to what they're mm. saying and taking it as fact. So, you know, is it right that we're we're having all of this nonsense just being kind of aired in the public sphere for for no good reason?
3: I think it's important that we understand the real world impact that a lot of this is having and how viral and how popular a lot of the figures we're talking about are here. You know, we're talking about I mean, you've mentioned a very, very popular tennis player. We're talking about Joe Rogan's podcast, which is, again, incredibly popular. Um, And I think when it comes to my job and the job of journalists reporting on this topic in particular, anti vax conspiracies, pandemic conspiracies, election conspiracies, there's a certain bar that they have to reach before we investigate them, before we air them. And that bar is usually that they are having a real-world impact on people's lives. They are having a real-world impact, and therefore it's essential that we understand what's happening and why, that we hold to account the different people or places who are spreading mistruths, or we hold to account the social media companies or politicians or other people who are involved in these disinformation worlds, these disinformation ecosystems online. So I think that we always have to think about the reach that these kinds of disinformation networks or conspiracy theories uh, have, and how they're affecting people. And I mean, we've had quite a lot of stories recently of violent rhetoric and violent tactics that are being used offline and there's a lot of coverage of a group of anti-vax activists who harangued Keir sama outside parliament in order to understand why that happened we need to understand what's happening in online conspiracy movements and if we don't understand that and interrogate it and make sense of it then we're not actually able to realize oh wait okay here's where these people came from here's why it matters and here's the possible real world consequence threatening rhetoric and you know, politicians being left worried and an impact on our democracy. And amongst all of that, as well as the human cost, it's important to put that evidence forward to debunk and to tell people what's accurate, correct information and what's false.
0: You mentioned the role of social media in all of this. And I mean, we've seen effective deplatforming happening on social media. Should more of that go on?
3: When it comes to... The policies of social media sites, we've seen how they've evolved throughout the pandemic. There was a boom in disinformation around coronavirus, around vaccines, and they have reacted to that and enforced or created new policies often to deal with it. Critics would argue that those policies were not introduced quickly enough and that they've not always been effectively enforced, um, although uh, the social media sites would argue otherwise. I think it's important to think about where people are seeing this information and how they are being drawn into these new spaces and groups. So in the podcast series Death by Conspiracy, we look at how one particular uh, local Facebook group became uh, a place where the man who we talk a lot about, Gary Matthews, uh, a man who believed in coronavirus conspiracies before then dying of COVID-19, he was a member of that group. But before that, he'd actually been really engaged in his local Facebook group where he loved sharing photographs and art. And yet within the space of a year, he found himself deep into this very uh, conspiracy focused group that's full of disinformation and false claims about the pandemic. And it's important to understand why or how social media sites didn't stop that happening and what responsibility they do have. So I think it's crucial that we interrogate those policies, not just when they exist and question whether they are protecting users but also you know what that does mean for our ability to express ourselves online.
0: It sounds like there are two things going on that that you're concerned with that a there is a victim in this but you know also there are perpetrators of a a sort of crime I guess that people who incite this self-harm should be held more to account. And, you know, perhaps someone like Djokovic, you know, might fall into that category, I suppose. One
3: thing we found throughout the pandemic in particular is that public figures, celebrities are often very effective vectors for disinformation, people with big followings who reach a lot of people, because people often trust people that they are fans of. They also trust friends and family. And when someone has a big reach, what they're saying on social media about vaccines or about the pandemic is likely to affect a whole range of different people. And a lot of this comes down to trust, and it comes down to who we trust and what we trust. And when it comes to social media, a lot of people are more engaged with exciting, often not accurate content because the accurate content is boring and less exciting and it's coming from places that are faceless or less engaging relative to the celebrities or other people they admire so absolutely one facet of this conversation is the role that public figures play in what they choose to promote on social media and the real world consequence that can have when they're giving out information about the pandemic
0: free speech itself is not absolute there are things that you aren't allowed to do you aren't allowed to incite violence hate speech is something there there are laws against it and uh, holocaust denial for instance it's illegal to do that Could we see that extended, you know, would it be effective? Or do you think that, you know, the more that you kind of encroach on free speech, the more you drive people away? I'm not sure where I stand on this myself.
3: It's an issue that's been discussed a lot around the online safety bill. And actually, I gave evidence to one of the committees, uh, a committee of MPs involved in looking at that legislation, specifically about online hate. And a number of the women who featured on that panel with me, I was specifically talking about an investigation into online hate targeting women that I did for Panorama. The women who were on the panel with me raised again and again the issue that online abuse and threats particularly actually inhibit the freedom of speech of the people being targeted and affected. They're no longer able to you know, express what they think for fear of receiving rape or death threats. And so I think when we talk about that issue of freedom of speech, it's important to think about the experiences of people who are drawn into online disinformation that's destroying their lives people who are being bombarded with threats and abuse and thinking about their freedom of expression and actually again as you say but how they are victims of what's happening on social media and how they can be better protected
0: mariana as ever it has been fascinating to talk to you and thank you so much for everything you and your team at the bbc is doing
3: thank you so much thanks for having me
2: hi Sorry to interrupt your listening, but there's another great podcast from the Mail on Sunday you might want to try. Liz Jones' Diary, the podcast, offering a weekly look into the life of Britain's most unfiltered columnist. That's me. Find us at mailplus.co.uk.
1: I keep coming back to a 17-year-old boy, very intelligent boy, well-spoken boy that we spoke to on this podcast, in fact, a few months ago. And he was one of this group of children who said that they would rather have COVID than take the vaccine. Oh, yes. And he was incredibly intelligent. He knew exactly what he was talking about. He didn't really come out with any strange COVID conspiracy theories. But his point was that he felt that he had concerns and that every time he tried to bring them up they were dismissed and he grew more and more aware of the fact that there were big billboards everywhere telling him to take this vaccine and that there was no room for any discussion about any of the ideas that he'd heard that he felt really needed addressing.
0: So what do you do about that? I, I can't remember if you came to a Jerry Springer moment in that article <laughs> about what, how, how you combat this problem.
1: I think I agree with what Mariana was saying, that you do have to explore these issues that you might think are complete nonsense in a sort of non-patronising way with people in order to sort of meet them where they're at. And I think you will at some point understand and weed out the people who, you know, no amount of debunking is going to make any difference to what they think because they're set in their ways and the people like this teenager who actually may well have been convinced.
0: But I am fascinated with the idea that there is a solution to this problem, I had no idea that Mercola, he's not very well known here, but Joseph mm-hmm. Mercola's for a long time been huge in America and he promotes all kinds of very bizarre alternative therapy type views and he's very anti-science in many ways Mm. and and promotes dangerous myths. And he's written about
1: a million books, hasn't he?
0: He's written lots of books and he sells supplements. It all seems to lead back to some kind of sale of something.
1: I think it's really important to point out as well when we discuss this that we are not in America and the US has a problem that is 10 times our problem when it comes to misinformation. And although, yes, it has been proliferating on social media in the UK, our vaccine uptake rate has been phenomenal, despite these kind of pockets of um, social media influences.
0: But the fact is that he'd rode back on some of his stuff because it was hurting him financially. I, I thought that was intriguing. You know, I mean, people mm. have lo- long said that he's completely a mercenary character and only puts these extreme anti-medicine articles up on his website because they get so much traffic and then he sells more stuff.
1: Oh, I absolutely think that's true for many medics on Twitter, to be honest, who say controversial things because they know it's going to well, it's going to start a start a conversation.
0: Naming no names, <laughs> some British GMC In one registered. Soon we will. <laughs> <laughs> for legal purposes, we cannot mention his name. Oh,
1: or yeah. is it a her? Or
0: is it a her? Right. Well, that uh, we could talk about this forever, and I expect we'll come back to it at some point. But that's all we've got time for. You can find all the latest health news in this weekend's The Mail on Sunday and visit mailplus.co.uk forward slash subscribe, if I can remember it. Mm. And visit mailplus.co.uk forward slash subscribe to get access to all of our podcasts, opinion pieces, pictures, poems, songs, everything you could possibly want for a website. Oh, and follow us on Twitter by searching at @mailplus.
1: And we will be back with another topic on Medical Minefield next week, and we will see you then.
0: Goodbye.